Matthew 28, verse 16. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Lord Jesus, what incredibly comforting words that you give to us. That you have all authority, for you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. And you are with us always, even here in this place on this day. Thank you, O God. And thank you for the promise then that you are with our children as they are gathered in children's worship. Lord, would you use the children's worship time as a means of grace in the life of these children that they will come to know you as their Lord and as their Savior and they can long for that day when they will stand before your presence whole. And for us, O God, as we look to this passage and we consider together being worshipers, Lord, would you grip our hearts Would you bless the preaching of your word? Would you bless it beyond our wildest dreams? Would you pierce the depths of our hearts and give to each of us what we need so that we might live more and more for you and bring glory and honor to that great and awesome name of Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen. As we start this new year, um, I felt it was really important that we we once again remember what our purpose is. And so we go back as we're starting the year, and and the purpose of of providence in reality is the purpose of the church that's here on earth, um, of of why we're still here. And we see that in in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 16 through 20. You see it in the front of your bulletin. Um, I think on page 2, it mentions the purpose of the church, which is very simple, to make disciples. As we worked on the vision years ago, uh, trying to refine that, we didn't take any time to talk about the purpose. That wasn't up for debate because Jesus gave it to us. He said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to make disciples. And so we knew that. And so that's, that's our purpose. And so we're going to be looking through the Great Commission for the uh, month of January, hopefully giving that as, as a foundation as we continue to look at what it means to follow Jesus. In Matthew 28, verse 16 and 17, we see something significant, and that is the context in which the Great Commission was given. Um, The Great Commission was given, and we we looked at last week, that it was given to the 11 disciples. Now, it's very possible that there were other disciples along with the 11 that went up on that mountain with Jesus on that day, but he, he singled out the 11 disciples, and the reason he singles that out is to remind us that if we're to fulfill the purpose of the church... It's going to mean we've got to be disciples. We've got to live as disciples. That's how we're going to fulfill the purpose of the church. And then he turns the attention to what was the the rest of the context is these disciples who had gathered together to climb this mountain to meet with Jesus. What did they do? They worshipped. So the context in which the Great Commission is given is worship. And so if we're to fulfill the purpose of the church, not only must we live as disciples, we must also live as worshippers of Jesus. And so that's what I want us to consider together this morning and think now about, well, how do we do that? And to begin, it means that we've got to worship the true God. 
to worship the true God. Some of you might be familiar with uh, A.W. Tozer, um, uh, one of my favorite uh, authors. He's a Christian Missionary Alliance uh, pastor and, and author. Wrote uh, several great uh, devotional books, uh, Pursuit of the Holy uh, and uh, The Knowledge of the Holy. Um, both of those are, are really important. Pursuit of God, Knowledge of Holy. And I'm going to read from The Knowledge of the Holy uh, this morning. Um, Tozer prompts us to think deeply. He says, For this reason... The gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God, just as her most significant message is what she says about God, or leaves unsaid, for her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. She can never escape the self-disclosure of her witness concerning God. He points out a tendency that we have. And it's that tendency to be drawn toward our imagination of who God is. Not necessarily who God is in reality. And that's why I believe that there is a, a grave and dangerous tendency to worship a God who matches our expectations rather than the God who is. It reminds me of uh, one of the things a seminary professor told us as he began his uh, uh, lectures. I think this was the second class that I took in seminary. And the professor began by saying, none of you came here to learn. Each one of you came here to be affirmed. And I was deeply convicted by that statement. Because I realized that I was trying to judge this professor based on whether or not he said those things that I expected him to say. I was looking exactly for that. I wanted him to affirm. He needed to say what I already thought. He didn't need to be pushing me beyond. And with that attitude, what happens if he points me to the Scripture and it says something different than I already think? It's problematic. What happens most of the time is I rearrange Scripture so that it matches what I want to think. Most of the time, I have a God that is not the same as the God of the Bible, who's in my mind. Even as a Christian, my thoughts of God are not frequently driven by the Word of God, but by what my expectation of God is. And it's not just, just me. We all face this. Think of Jonah. Remember the story of Jonah? That he's called as this prophet. He's supposed to go up to Nineveh. And he's supposed to preach the message to Nineveh. Nineveh is off to the east. So what does he do? He gets on a ship to the west. He's supposed to go to what is Iraq, and instead he heads toward Spain. Well, that didn't work so well, did it? And even when God brought a storm, did that change his mind? No. Even when he, they, they picked him up and they threw him into the sea, what is his prayer when he's in the, in the sea and, and he's swallowed by a whale? And he's in that belly of a whale for three days and three nights. What's his prayer? His prayer is, I'm righteous and they're horrible. Then it spits him out. Wouldn't that be a lovely experience? To get spit out of a whale's belly. 
And he gets up and he says, okay, I'll go. And he shows up at Nineveh and he brings that incredibly compassionate message to these, these Ninevites who are about to be destroyed and he wants to, to bring them to a place of salvation. His message was, 40 days and you're going to die. That's the great compassion of Jonah. And then he sees that they're repenting and he goes up on the hill and he's wishing God would bring you know, the fire and brimstone down on him and he gets all mad. And he tells God, I knew this. I knew it. I knew you were a God of compassion and you were going to be loving to these people. Do you see what was true of, what was his expectation of God? His expectation of God is he wanted God to be a God of wrath without patience, right? That was Jonah's expectation. Think about the expectation of James and John. Before John was known as the disciple whom Jesus loved, he was known as a son of thunder. Partly because he walked up to Jesus with his brother James one time and saw some people who were uh, doing stuff without them, I think baptizing without him. He says, should we call down fire from heaven? Can you imagine Jesus going, oi. I, my word, first words would have been, really? Seriously? That's what you think I want to do? But you see, that was their expectation of Jesus. That was their image of of who God was, was that he was a vengeful God. And that was the entirety of their focus, and they had it in their mind. These apostles had this wrong view, and, and this wrong view meant they had a different God that they were serving. <coughs> what about Peter? This is a little more speculation on my part. But remember when Jesus said that they would all Leave him, and Peter stands up. Though all may leave you, Lord, I will not. Right? I think he had an expectation of Jesus that Jesus would prevent him from denying the Lord. Because it was at that moment that Jesus said, Peter, the cock isn't even going to crow before you've denied me three times. And that reality. But he had this expectation that, that God was going to perfect him all had these false expectations. There are false expectations even today, even in the church, aren't there? False expectations that we have today are that, that God will simply overlook sin, which is a very different thing than forgiving sin. He'll just overlook it. And so we don't really have to deal with it. We don't really have to confess it. We don't really have to repent of it. He'll just overlook it. We also have the idea that God's only going to help those who help themselves. You know, some of us have realized that's not actually the Bible that said that, but, but nonetheless, we still kind of think that's what God's going to do. And we think, you know, if people aren't working for themselves, forget them, right? And yet, doesn't even the passage we read today that God demonstrates his love in this, that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, indicates something quite different? And yet we have that mindset. We have this mindset that God's going to answer every prayer we ask just because we ask it, right? And he's going to answer it in the way we want it. I feel like that was the right answer. You see, this is our expectations, and that's not the real God. We're not worshiping the true God when we're worshiping that God. We're worshiping something entirely different. We see these words in verse 17, when they saw him. When they saw him. And it's very easy for us to just blow right on past those. And not put ourselves in that spot. 
Lewis Hill worked for uh, um, the uh, Navigators for years, and he taught at Navigators at Colorado State University one time, and I, I love what he told us. He said, put yourself in the story. Imagine you're one of those disciples who saw him. You just climbed up the mountain that Jesus designated. You had to walk the 90 miles to get there. Once you get there, then you got to go up a mountain. Occasionally there was grumbling, really Jesus, you couldn't have met us at the foot. Seriously, we got to go up the mountain. Okay, here we go. And, you, and you're going up the mountain, you get up the mountain, and you see him. Who do you see? Not the image that we have in our mind of Jesus, right? They see Jesus who they had just lived three years with. They see Jesus whom they had seen crucified. They see Jesus who wasn't in the tomb. They see the Jesus who came and joined with them and held out his hands and said, reach here your finger and here your hand. They saw that Jesus. They saw the Jesus that they give testimony to throughout the, the Gospel of John. Excuse me. In uh, John chapter 1, verse 49, we see what the testimony was of uh, Nathanael. Nathanael answered him, Jesus, and he said, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Who did Nathanael see as he went up that hill? He saw him. Who did he see? He saw the Christ. He saw the Son of God. He saw the King of Israel. That's who he saw when he saw him. That's not what we tend to think of. We tend to think, oh, we saw this guy with robes. He saw the Son of God. He saw the King of Israel. Martha may very well have been along with them because I believe that there were the 11, but I also think that there were many others. I happen to believe that Acts 1 and, and Matthew 28 are, are both the same incident and they're happening at the same time. But as she's going up, who would she have seen? Verse 27 of chapter 11 of John she tells us who she saw. She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. It's almost the same testimony that, that Peter gave in Caesarea Philippi when Jesus said, Who do you say that I am? He said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Who did they see? They saw the Son of God. They saw the King of Israel. They saw the Christ, the Son of the living God. They were aware of who they were seeing at this time. John chapter 20 tells us a little more of who they saw in verse 28. Remember the scene with Thomas? I mentioned it just a minute ago. Thomas says, I'm not going to believe in him unless I put my finger into the nails holes, unless I put my hand into the side. I will not believe. And so Jesus, in one of the greatest uh, acts of condescension came to him and said, here you go. Here you go. Put your hand here. Put your fingers here. In other words, whatever it takes, Thomas, for you to believe, I will give you. And what does Thomas say? Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. They saw him. Who did they see? They saw their Lord and their God upon that mountain. They didn't have to imagine. They experienced it at that moment. And to show a little bit more about what this meant, think of the words 
of Jesus to Simon from chapter 21. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. As Peter climbed that mountain, he saw the one he loved. He saw his Lord, he saw his God, he saw the Son of God, he saw the King of Israel, he saw the Christ. This is who they saw when they saw him. They saw the true and the living God. If we're to worship the true God, we have got to be, we've got to know who he is. I just want to look at this for a moment to know who he is. And, and there are three elements of knowing who he is that I want us to meditate on briefly this morning. We could, we could spend years just going through the, the attributes of God. But we're going to look at three. He's your creator. He's your creator. To understand the significance of that. What does that mean? I think of Star Trek a lot, maybe more than I should. But there's one, uh, if, you, if you are fans of the next generation, you know of Data. And Data is the android who is sentient. And Data was created by Dr. Sung. And the relationship between Data and Dr. Sung, and one of the things is both parts are played by the same uh, actor, which is kind of cool, because the creator made the android in his own image. It's important. And what's the relationship? He calls him Father. Because he recognizes that there's a unique connection to the one who has brought him into being. He has an intense loyalty to Dr. Sung because he knows this is the one who has created me. And I think it's a good reminder to us of what our relationship is with our creator. That he, he's made us and therefore we owe him our every breath, do we not? And uh, I'm going to pause just briefly. Chris, we'll be praying. Thank you. Um, so as even as I'm preaching, if you want to pray for uh, Jen and her family. Because he's our creator, we owe him our every breath. He's the reason that we're able to breathe. He's the reason we're able to experience this life. He's the reason we have all of the wonderful things. And to recognize that, that that's my God. But I want to I take it a step beyond that. I, I, I want to realize that he made you in his image uniquely, right? You are the very image of God. And I want you to grasp that as he's your creator, he delights in the way that you reflect him. He loves that about you. He's your creator. He's also your Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20 says, You have been bought with a price. Glorify God in your bodies. He's your Lord. We don't always understand the concept of lordship today and what that would mean. The closest we get to is we think about it like a, a slave and a master. 
But, but that was a relationship that was of, of, had some level of animosity and conflict associated with it, right? It was one of the interesting things in reading the biography of George Washington that he struggled with in having his slaves. He didn't understand why they weren't thrilled that they were his slaves and how wonderful he was. And he never quite got that. But if we think of it that in our relationship with God, we, we miss something significantly when we think of him as our Lord. It's not that he's the master and we're the slaves, no, the idea of lordship is, is he's the one that we've sworn faithfulness to because of his, his beauty, because of his strength, because of his power, because of his justice, because of his, his innate goodness, because he is, he is God. He is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in all his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And therefore we have sworn this, this allegiance to him and that connection to him because out, of, out of love for him. And there's a loyalty to him as, as our creator and as our Lord. And that's what it means to be our Lord. It isn't that he's the boss of us. He said, He is the Lord. He is Jehovah. And so we have that relationship with Him. The picture, part of it is seen in uh, Les Miserables. In, in the, the book Les Miserables, which is in books, I think it's like 10 volumes, but it's this horribly long thing. Um, Victor Hugo liked words. Um, but uh, there's, there's a scene in which uh, the character Valjean has become a mayor of a town and he's very beneficial to the, to the town, and he's a, a businessman who, who employs many, many people. And in that role, he's really benefited the, the town, but he's also um, uh, in an escaped prisoner, and he's uh, broken his parole, and he should go to prison. And Javert, his chief constable, has come to realize, oh, you're that Valjean. And he's about to uh, uh, come against him, but then there's another individual who's arrested and is accused of being Valjean. And Javert says, oh, he's clearly Valjean. It's not you, Lemaire. It's not you. It's, it's this guy. And Valjean wrestles. And he spends chapters, plural, talking about one night, I think it's almost you know real time, of Valjean's wrestling in his upper chamber as he walks back and forth and he contemplates, if I keep quiet, I will continue to be the mayor of this town. I will continue to, to bring about justice and righteousness in this community. I'll continue to be a businessman who will employ so many people. I will be able to take care of these people and, and uh, things will go well. And, and this man who is also a criminal and, and also isn't quite right, so he'll go to jail, but that's okay. There'll be a greater good that comes from it, right? And then he stops. And he says, but if I do that, an innocent man will be condemned for my crimes. If I do that, an innocent man will spend his life in prison that I have lived. I have understood that. It will kill that man. If I do that, if I am silent, I will find myself damned because I've let an innocent man suffer. And he goes back and forth. And in the musical version, there's a song, and there's a line in the song which, which demonstrates the turning point in Valjean's thinking. And that line is, My soul belongs to God, I know. I made that bargain long ago. That there was a moment of change in which he knew, My soul now belongs to God. And it began when the, the bishop called him his, his brother. And at that moment of seeing such grace and trans. trans formative grace. It began to change him. He began to live a different life. He was a different person. He was gone, but he knew that at the heart of it is he belonged to God. Therefore, he went to the trial 
And he revealed himself as Valjean with the very real distinct possibility that he would have to go back to jail. But it was right because God was his Lord. It's a powerful moment. He is your creator, he is your Lord, and he is your Savior. We just finished Advent. What was the point? Isn't the point telling us about our Savior? That Jesus came to earth not to be a cute baby, but to die upon a cross. And we remember the reason he died upon the cross is for our sin. You have been redeemed in love by Jesus Christ, this one who is on the mountain, this one that we come to worship. Will you trust him today? Trust him to be your Savior. He's your Creator. He's your Lord, he's your Savior, and he's more, much, much, much more. Explore him and honor him. Know who he is. If you're to worship the true God, you must know who he is and you must honor him. It says in uh, verse 17, what did they do after they saw him? They worshiped, which is the, the Greek word proskuneo. Proskuneo. It's a, a combination. There's a lot of things. It, it means to, to bow down and it means to, to kiss. Cuneo in particular is a word that's connected to dog. Isn't that interesting? And so uh, etymologists believe that the, the key is that the image is when your dog and you hold out your hand and your dog comes up and what does it do? It snuffles your hand and it licks your hand, Right? And you know it's incredible loyalty that that dog is showing by licking your hand, right? It's not what some people say, that it just knows there are bones underneath there. It's, it's, it's saying, I, I really, truly love you. And you know that dog is committed to you, right? That's the image. That's the image that's given to us. When it was originally used, it's used in the uh, Old Testament, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and it's used in, in different places. One is the uh, idea of Psalm 72, verse 9, which talks about uh, the righteous king who had come, the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, let the nomads of the desert bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. Originally, the idea was that when you were around a, a certain person of, of, of such eminence, you would fall upon your face, you would pros, pros kuneo, you would fall down and you would kiss the ground in front of them. To lick the dust is that, that image that's there. And this is what is given to us as, as the idea of, of worship. It means we've got to bow the knee. To bow the knee. Okay? I would do that, but it's really hard to get back up these days, so um, you'll just have to pretend. Philippians chapter 2, verse 10, tells us that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? We understand that. We understand that every knee is going to bow. But you know, we can bow the knee and not bow the heart. Right? Jesus says to the Jews of his day in Matthew chapter 15, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And he's just quoting from several hundred years earlier, Isaiah, who said the same thing. That we can honor him with our lips. We can honor him with our bodies. We can honor him by showing up and not honor him in our heart. But what we're talking about worshiping the true God is we're talking about honoring him with our heart, which involves following him. 
wherever he leads, also involves going to tell the world. That's why verse 19 follows verse 17. Verse 17 says they worship. Verse 19 says, go and make disciples. That's one of the ways that you worship him. To live as worshipers, we've got to be sure that we're worshiping the true God. Not the God of our minds, not the God of our imagination, but we've got to know who he is, and then we've got to honor him. We also must learn to rest in his grace. To rest in his grace. The Westminster Confession of Faith is the doctrinal standard of our church. And uh, it was written in the 1640s. Um, and uh, uh, chapter 21 is a chapter that deals with religious worship. And the first paragraph um, is uh, what I'd like to read to us as it talks about worship. And, and let me just give you a warning. Um, the Westminster divines uh, loved commas and parenthetical thoughts. They could not say a straight-line sentence to save their souls. It just was not a possibility, and so they go all over the place. So, so bear with them, and, and we'll unpack this together. It says, The light of nature shows that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all is good and does good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart, with all the soul, and with all the might. Amen? So far, so good. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. It started out with a very simple statement, and then all of a sudden he added an awful lot of stuff to it, didn't they? Start off with a simple statement that, but the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself. That is to say that God gets to determine the right way to worship God. Only makes sense, right? It's the whole reason why, men, we do not buy our wives chainsaws for Mother's Day. Right? Because that's buying her what we want her to want so we can use. Right? That's not it. But instead, what do we get our wife on Mother's Day? What our wife wants, right? This could be revelatory. If so, men, write it down. This is key. I get them what they want. I do what they desire. I join into their life. The same is true with God. I don't worship God the way that I want God to want to be worshipped. I worship God the way He wants to be worshipped. How do I know that? He tells me in His Word. And I have to follow it. Now, the concept that we're talking about is called the regulative principle of worship. It's the regulative principle of worship. Some will say, well, the regulative principle of worship is in the Westminster Confession, but is it in the Bible? And the answer is a resounding yes. Yes, it's actually more specific than the Westminster Divines made it. And I'm so glad. And it's found in Deuteronomy chapter 12. Let's begin reading in verse 29. When the Lord your God, this is, uh, again, uh, Moses talking to Israel as they're about to cross over into the, the promised land. They haven't crossed yet, but they're getting ready. As they'd say in the south, they're fixing to. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations which you're going in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, beware that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, How do these nations serve their gods that I also may do likewise? Notice what the command is. Don't ask them how to worship. 
The world does not teach us how to worship our God. He's saying that these other nations are very religious. These other nations have clear religious rites and things that they do. Do not ask on how they do that. He goes on. You shall not behave thus toward the Lord your God. For every abominable act which the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. And then he sums it up. Here's the summation. Here is the regular principle of worship. All of that is so that we understand that verse 32 is in the context of God telling the people how to worship Him. Right? He says, you're to worship Me, not by going to the nations and asking them, how do you worship God? He says in verse 32, whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to, nor take away from it. How do we worship? Well, God has to command it. Which is even different than what we have to see an example of it in the Bible. Which is very different than as long as God doesn't say don't, we can do it. No, 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 no. That is not what God said. God said, what I command you, you do. This is the regulative principle of worship. There's a danger with this. There's a danger with this because of the fallenness of our hearts. Because we recognize this is God's command, and we can say, I want to do God's command. Amen? So I want to work hard to follow what God has commanded. As we work hard to be sure that what we're doing in worship is following the commands of God. And we in our church have, have summarized what are the commands that God has given to us. We, we break it down into four areas. We say He's commanded us to worship Him uh, through the Word of God, right? He commands us to read the Scripture. He commands me to preach the Word. He commands us to speak the Word to one another throughout Scripture. It's replete. He commands us to worship Him through prayer. How many times are we commanded to pray in Scripture? Right? He commands us to worship Him through music. Right? To, to play a skillful song. Like uh, Matt pointed out one time, people sometimes are upset that the drums are on the stage, and yet on this stage, the only instruments that are actually mentioned in the Bible are the drums. That's fascinating. But anyway, but we're commanded to use that to, to worship our God. And we're commanded to worship Him through commitment. Through, through giving and taking of vows, through communion, through baptism, through, through church discipline. We're to have this commitment. Our, our tithes and offerings are commitment. We have these four areas and we seek to follow them and we work hard to be sure that our worship service is aligned by the commands of Scripture. And we work hard at that. And what can happen is we can begin to think we're doing it. Right? Because we can check off all four of those boxes, can't we? No problem. We got it. We got it. We got it. We got it. We got this. And we begin to think we get it right. And we begin to look at the people around us and we can say, and they don't. We can begin to look at the other denominations and say, they got it wrong. See, they ignore the regular principle of worship or they don't even care about what God says. So they're doing things all together and we begin to get built up in this pride. And this pride can then begin to make us think that we're better than other people. And all of a sudden we find ourselves, okay, so maybe we have the four years of worship right, but our hearts sure are wrong, aren't they? Because we're sitting around with judgmental hearts. That's the danger. Just think about Deuteronomy 6.5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Let's be honest. Do we? Jesus said that's the first commandment. We can't even get the first one down. How in the world are we ever going to get by you shall not covet? let alone trying to figure out the, the distinctions of sacraments. We can't get the easiest thing down. 
And so what do we do? We have no place for pride. No place for pride. I have to have something else make my worship acceptable to God because I fail. And so my hope is that His grace forgives my failures. That His grace will forgive my failures. Look at verse 17. When they saw Him, they worshipped. But some were doubtful. The word doubt there means to basically hold two opinions at this, two opposing opinions at the same time. Right? Isn't that what doubt is? I believe in God. And yet, and they were doubtful. Now, think about this. Let's go back. Let's be there again. These are individuals who were standing before the resurrected Jesus Christ. Right? These are individuals who had touched him even since the resurrection, who had heard his voice even since the resurrection, who had seen him, who had eaten with him. And they still doubted. Understand this. Make no mistake. That was sin. It was sin. But who are they standing before when they're doubting? As he says, come here. What do they see? We see those hands. Why were those hands pierced? To pay the full penalty for all of their sins, right? Even their doubts. He would paid for it. He didn't overlook it. He didn't pretend it didn't happen. You notice he put it in Scripture. But he forgave it, which is way better than overlooking it. Isn't it interesting as well? He didn't even rebuke them to say, why are you doubting? Instead, he accepted them. His grace forgives our failures and His grace perfects your worship. We try our best. We really want to worship well, don't we? I really do. I really have that mindset when I get up in the morning and I I meet with God for, for personal worship. I want it to be really, really good. But sometimes my mind gets distracted and I run off and I'm thinking about the day instead of praying. One of the most common things that I say to myself while I'm praying is, you're planning. I'm not actually praying anymore. I'm just planning. And, and I'm kind of filling God in on what he ought to do. Right? That's the reality. We try hard, but we fail. So what do we do? What do we do? We acknowledge it. We acknowledge it. We say, Lord, I'm planning. And then we try again. Right? We walk along, we fall on our face, we get up, and we keep moving forward. That's what we do. Because we recognize that our worship is acceptable to God the Father because of Jesus. 
Friends, when we say the words at the end of each prayer, in Jesus' name, allow it to be a reminder to you that that's how this worship is now acceptable to God. In Jesus, He did it right because we can't. And so God accepts us because He did it right. You know what's interesting about the Great Commission? The Great Commission is either one of or the last words of Jesus before he goes up into heaven. Like I, I said, I believe that it's happening at the same time as Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And he says in Matthew, Matthew records the part that says, Go therefore and make disciples. And uh, Luke recorded it as, uh, and You'll be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. But same concept. And as Jesus is giving the final marching orders to the church, he does not command them to worship. Isn't that interesting? And I think the reason is because worship is bigger than the Great Commission. Worship is the context in which the Great Commission is fulfilled. Worship is bigger than making disciples. Worship becomes the way in which those who are living as disciples and living as worshipers of Jesus are able to make disciples of all the nations. Let's live as worshipers of Jesus. And let's worship the true God. And let's rest in His grace. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you at the end of a worship service needing your spirit. Father, we want to be worshipers of you. And so we lift our heads with confidence and we look to the future with tremendous hope and we believe, Lord God Almighty, that you will help us to be your worshipers and your disciples and that you will use us as your worshipers and your disciples to make disciples of all the nations. Do this, O God, through this congregation, I ask, for the glory of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.